Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Ongoingness. It's your host Jenny here. This week's prompt is to simply write a love letter to your favorite podcast. We love to hear the feedback. We love to hear your voice. Reach out via email or our physical address, snail mail if you have it. And with that, I would really, really love to introduce our last guest of season two. This is episode 10 of season two, so a very special one. And it is Leona Ness, singer, songwriter, musician. And Leona sent me a really beautifully written bio that I'd love to read, almost kind of like a short story, and it was written by Lior Phillips. So shout out to you, Lior. There's a mythic, thrilling quality to cicadas that isn't often acknowledged. The flutter of glittering carapaces and rupturous wings only emerge after spending roughly a decade and a half underground, developing, growing. And when they emerge, they emit a sound unlike anything else on Earth. Midway through making her new album in 2021, singer-songwriter Leona Ness read an article detailing the upcoming emergence of Brood X, a family of cicadas due to emerge along the east coast of the United States for the first time since 2004, the same year she'd last released an album, the same year she met her now husband, the same year her father passed away. And in the intervening years, Ness had lived her own life underground, nesting, preparing for motherhood and growing her family. After 17 years, birthed from a kit of remarkable vulnerability, honesty, and strength, Brood X, via Messiness Records, distributed through AWOL, is an album of rebirth, reemergence, and rediscovery. Ness made her name in the early thousands on warm, radiant, lyrically-driven indie rock, earning a wide range of rave reviews. Vanity Fair's Lisa Robinson called her debut gorgeous, while Billboard lauded her sweetly melancholic and angel-evoking sound. In those years, Ness was living in the historic Chelsea Hotel, befitting her prominent role in the New York music scene and international cult following. Being in New York at that time was wild, putting out three records in quick succession between 2000 and 2003, she says. I lived through those years that everyone seems to be so nostalgic for. They were incredible, and there was inspiration everywhere, but I also found it extremely destructive and chaotic, and I'm happy I got out in one piece. However, Ness's diverse musical past also includes time studying music composition and even singing on stage as a child with her then stepmother, the legendary Diana Ross. Now on the lead single for Brood X, Name Across the Sky, Ness draws together the full spectrum of that history in a newly emergent synth pop sound that highlights her undeniable emotional vitality. Days keep moving, chasing ruin, please don't let this pass us by, Ness sings in a lithe falsetto, attempting to recapture a relationship perpetually fading out of her reach. But rather than wallow, the song leaves equal room to punch the sky to vent frustration, to express love and bitterness simultaneously, to represent the full spectrum of emotions that comes with troubled relationships. It's about loving someone that keeps letting you down, but deciding that you need them around and it's not worth losing them, Ness says. The track was also the first that Ness worked on with producer Max Cook, immediately cementing their connection. Within three hours of meeting Max, we had written and recorded Name Across the Sky, she says. After that day, I knew that he was going to be the one. But the partnership with Cook here reframes that personal depth in an even wider array of illuminating tones. For every synth-fueled, cure-indebted swirl, there is a CM, a meditative track, sung regally over echoing piano. That track exemplifies the impact that the COVID pandemic has had, 
unlocking grief in unexpected and unfamiliar ways. My mother had died a few months before recording and I didn't really cry. But then when my dog Charlie died, I cried for all the years I couldn't connect to my pain about my mother and not seeing loved ones and just all the shit that was hurting, Ness reveals. While the ache of loss plays a powerful role in Brudex, the record brilliantly captures the cyclical nature of womanhood and motherhood. Built off an adoration for Ennio Marricone, album opener Call You By Your Name represents both the weight of joy that comes from parenthood and the anxiety lingering in the fact that these new lives can't be fully controlled. For Ness, new identities have to emerge. Anyone with kids should relate to those feelings, or really anyone that loves any human, Ness laughs. By fusing sweet nods to childhood, like Twinkle Twinkle Little Star, I Think You're Lovely As You Are, and a minor key titled chorus, Call You By Your Name, produces a beguiling push and pull, all leading to a frenetic, polyrhythmic conclusion. No song captures the long gestating nature of Brood X better than The Beginning, a track that Ness and bandmate Jason Grizzell had first demoed verses for when she was pregnant with her first child over a decade ago. I realized that it was the end of everything I knew and the beginning of something else. Being pregnant was like waiting to jump off a cliff into unknown waters, she explains. And in the 10 years that followed, she didn't pick up a guitar. The recording of the beginning, sitting on her phone, a reminder of a dormant element. It was my tiny heartbeat, my secret weapon, she says. And after 10 years of motherhood, an answer to the verse's questions, what if I'm no longer your girl? driven by a renewed artistic drive and realization that she can't be contained by one role. I keep my heart beating for everything, everyone, and the one. There's got to be more than a life begun, she sings, embracing an increasing fullness of life as both artist and mother. Singular moments of vitality, loss, and growth in Ness's life define these songs' origins, but their echoes and heartfelt murmurs will resonate with listeners at any point in those cycles. I spent my childhood in my room with my guitar while my parents were getting divorced, and it saved me from the pain, she says. I don't know how to write songs that aren't honest. It took 10 years, but it was so empowering to make work that I'm 100% behind and represents that capacity for growth. I realized that no one facet of life can be the beginning and the end. With that, let's welcome Leona Ness. Hey everyone, welcome back to Ongoingness. Today we have Leona Ness. I am super excited to have her on 
And why don't we start, first of all, with a huge congratulations on your newest album, Brood X, which we will definitely talk about later down the line, the launch of that. But first, I'd love for you to introduce yourself, tell us a little bit about you. And I'm really curious to hear your sort of coming of age story or whatever you want to call it, like the growing up, the family life and the early inspiration pieces. Oh my goodness, we're going to be here forever. <laughs> my name's Leona Ness. I am a singer, a songwriter. I just made my fifth record. And I had a 17-year kind of hibernation sabbatical between this record that just came out, Brudex, and the record before, which was called 13. And um, yeah, uh, <laughs> I guess that's where we begin. Well, I'm curious if you want to talk a little bit about, I know you... Grew up, you said, in London, right? I'm a mutt. I used to hate this question as a kid because every place I went, I felt like I didn't belong. My mother was Swedish. My father was Norwegian. And they met in Stockholm in the 60s and late 60s. And then they moved to New York. And then when I was two, so they had my brother, my sister, and myself. And then they moved to London when I was two. So I was actually born in New York. And then we went, I grew up in London and I always felt like an outsider there because I think it's, it's different now, but at the time in the seventies, London was, you know, it was kind of us, you couldn't just kind of come there as an American or a Swede or a Norwegian and just kind of, you know, like in New York, you can, you can be from anywhere. And after six months, you're a New Yorker. Whereas in London, at least, or in England, it felt very much like you would never be British. You know, you could only ever be a tourist. So I always felt a little outside. And my mother always complained about the British because she was very Swedish and very affectionate and very, you know, just warm. And I think she found that they were quite cold and stuffy and posh and so I kind of always grew up with this feeling of not belonging and then we moved around a lot I went to a lot of different schools my parents got divorced when I was pretty young my father got remarried and I was lots of brothers and sisters and then I moved the, the reason I kept coming to New York is I think that I always felt that I could be a New Yorker but I never felt I could be a Londoner or Swede or Norwegian because they were very much like you have to be from there. Otherwise, you don't belong. Do you know what I mean? I do. I do. But yeah, it's very complicated. I, I People ask me how many brothers I have, and I always have to think about it. <laughs> I can't remember. I have so many siblings. That's the beauty of a blended family, right? Yes. My mother had two kids before she met my father. She was a diplomat, uh, well, an ambassador's daughter, Swedish ambassador, um, and every four years they would move to a different city. So she lived in Rio, she lived in Paris, she lived in Germany. I mean, she lived everywhere. And so she, when she was 18, 19, she fell in love with this Brazilian race car driver and had two kids. And then she kind of ran away. And I guess she met my father, and then they had three kids. And then when I was about 10, my father remarried and had two more kids. And then his wife had three daughters. So we, we were kind of this huge family. And then my, before my dad died, a few years before he um, met his last girlfriend, wife, and had two more boys. And so we're a lot. 
We're a, lot, a huge family. We love a huge family here. I love it. I love it. And I wish I could give that to my kids, but not going to happen. <laughs> so I'm curious about, you know, I saw some articles that you grew up around some musicians. You grew, you grew up around a lot of, as you said, a huge family. So I'm sure there were many, many, many different kinds of influences, but that you got signed very young. And we, we know young is relative. Like you got signed in your early, early 20s. What was that like for you, you know, leaving school and then getting signed pretty much right away by a major record label? Well, now, if I had kind of the wisdom that I have now, I'd probably be freaking out. But I had this like blind belief in myself that I can't understand because I see, I see kind of footage of me live um, at that time. And I was really bad. And this is why when people ask me, you know, what's your advice with, with young, younger people when they're singing or making music? I'm like, hone your skill. Like, you don't need to release a record right now. Like, get really good. Do 10,000 hours of shows. You know, do all of it. I don't understand this, like, need for, like, oh, she's 15. It's like, whatever. I mean, that's brilliant. But be brilliant. And then go out into the world. I think I was a little bit, I'd done a lot of shows, but I think I was... I was a big sign at the time, and so there was a lot of pressure. And I luckily thought I could do it. And the problem with that is it was so fast. And then as soon as things don't go accordingly, say radio stops playing your song, it's amazing how quickly people's minds change. And if you're young, it's hard because... You have to believe in yourself. So I think I thought I was great because people thought I was great. But as soon as they stopped thinking I was great, I stopped thinking I was great. So like the minute that kind of I had like a almost hit and all the radio stations were playing it. And I remember being backstage and I was playing at the El Rey Theater in L.A. And I remember um, my manager came up to me and was like, oh, I don't know if it was K. It was maybe K-Rock or one of those stations. Like they just stopped playing Charm Attack. So... That means all the radio stations in the country are going to stop because it was like it was one of those radio stations that like dictate to all the others. And I remember being like right before going on stage, and it was like the carpet was pulled from under me, the rug, and I just suddenly was like, I can't go on stage. I suck. And now I think, as an older person, and say with this record, I really love it, and it kind of doesn't matter. I mean, it would be great if people listened to it, but I kind of it won't dictate how I feel about it. And so at the time when I was a kid, I think that all these people were kind of jumping on board to sign and all that, and I thought that that meant all this stuff. And, and actually, when it didn't work the way that they expected, then I just kind of fell into a hole. You know, it's, it was really hard after that to make another record and to believe in myself and and to stand up to people because I I believed in the hype. You're gonna have to like take both with a grain of salt, the hype and also the, the valley. Right. It's such an important point to note that you're at the time, which is so common and I still feel this way, that your opinion of yourself hinged on the, the opinions others had of you. And it's so hard to break free from that. As a child, as I feel like more, much more as an adult than as a child. As a child, you don't care. I feel like we we become adults and then we 
spend our entire adulthood trying to fight our way back to what it felt like to be a kid, both in freedom and in sense of creativity and exploration, but also in just not caring. Yeah. I mean, I would say what my issue was is that I was kind of a huge music snob, which was really made no sense because I wasn't like Radiohead, but I kind of had this like shoot everything down. And so I was kind of this, I guess, mainstream artist in some way, but then I was listening to like, you know, Nick Drake and reading biographies about like Bob Dylan or Joni Mitchell and just how they like, just like blaze their own path. And I was like, I was my worst enemy. I was kind of, I didn't know what I was. I didn't know whether I was just going to be this like artist that had hits or I was going to be this really obscure. And I kept getting in my own way. And I think that's also a really important question to ask yourself when you start with anything. It's like, where do I want to go? What's my intention? Like, do I just want to make music and not make any money and just put it out there and one day it will be found? And Or am I doing this to be famous? Or am I doing this for, for people to like me? And I think probably my answer would have been, I would never admit it, but when I was younger, I just wanted, I wanted my dad's approval and I wanted to be adored. And I, I never thought I was like the pretty one. I never thought I was like, I never thought I was smart. I wasn't very good at school. So in my mind, when I started, I was like, I'm a musician. I don't care what I look like. I'm going to be, I'm going to like lean against like, I mean, I, I was, was, I should have just like, I should have just kind of leaned into it and just taken full advantage of the opportunity I was given, which was huge. I had an amazing team of people and I just like, I'd do a show and I'd go home, or go and be with my friends. I never met anyone, never did any meet and greets. I didn't remember any radio people's n- names. I just had my head in the clouds. You were just in your early twenties. Yeah. But you see now you, you say that, but like, Kids these days, and I mean this broadly, like in their 20s, that are making music, they're so like, you know, they're all, they've all been to like music business school and they're all like, you know, they're just so savvy, savvy, you know, they know how to produce, they know how to filter themselves, they don't take drugs, they don't drink, they wake up at six and exercise and then they go to the studio, like there's just a different breed. It definitely seems like that. Yeah, I just, I feel like the rock and roll is just gone it's like they're just little like I mean, it's amazing and they're just you know but when I was starting everyone was kind of a mess I feel like some of us are really nostalgic for that mess and I don't want to say the actual mess but like the music it produced and the feeling and the music it produced and speaking of that feeling and your music what were some early musical influences for you the first and there's a few records I loved the Edie Brickell record you know, me, I remember that coming out and and the Tracy Chapman record, Fast Card, that whole thing. So there was all this kind of like, um, and then Sinead O'Connor and Lie on the Cobra. There was all these girls that were women or whatever that were kind of coming out and really being honest. And I mean, Sinead O'Connor for me was my favorite because, and this is like I was saying to you when you said, oh, can you explain the songs? And I used to listen to that record over and over and over again. And then I would look at the CD or tape sleeve at the time and just read. I used to love the thank yous and read them and try to figure out, like, who's this song about? And what does this mean? And I just love, I loved that. And 
I loved how honest it was and it was so personal. It wasn't even like you could take one of those songs and make it about you because it was so personal, but so powerful. So I would say that was one of the big records and Madness. I loved Suggs. I wanted to marry him and The Cure. And I mean, every one of those songs are just like one of the best pop songwriters of all time, I would say, Robert Smith. I assume he writes it, but maybe he writes it with one of his band members, and I should know that. But just the way that he can write these lyrics that are so intelligent, but then have this melody and this beat that's so pop that is never tiresome. And usually pop can get so tiresome. That's the key for me. It's that never tiresome. It's like the albums I love the most I can listen to. I've been listening to a lot of them from the time I was like 12 to now. And I might have a year where I get sick of it and I don't listen to it, but I always return to the same album, the same few albums. And for well, what's me, yours? I'm curious what yours is. Mine are like Elliot Smith and uh, Gillian Welch. Those two come to mind the most. I mean, I have several other favorites. I love Pavement. So yeah, for me, it was Elliot Smith and Gillian Welch. And the thing I love about a really great album is you can listen to it like 800 times and on the 800th, 800th listen, suddenly it makes you cry when it used to make you laugh. And it's just so, it's so strange to me how, how many times I could listen to the same song and maybe get a completely different thing out of it based on the moment in life I'm in and that they all seem to hold this infinite world inside of them, you know, just in those three minutes or one minute or whatever it is. Another one is Adrian Linker. I love Adrian Linker. Oh, she's amazing. I've been listening to this one song of hers that's like... Which one? Music for Indigo is the song. It's a super long instrumental piece. Like, she doesn't sing in it at all. And it starts almost like with wind chimes. It sounds like it's in her backyard or something, or she's out in the middle of nowhere. And it's so peaceful. It's almost like this long meditation. But I listened, I've listened to it probably like a thousand times. I think I used to do that more when I was younger. I don't, I do do it, but I have this thing now where I feel completely like cracked open. I can't really listen to too much sad music. I get, I just dry. So as soon as like I hear certain chords or certain kind of words, I just break down. It's so funny. It's like, I think that sad music is really for the young. That's interesting. I used to want to channel my sadness. So if I, you know, broke up with someone or if something happened to me or fighting with a friend or something, I would, I would like go into my room, put on the saddest song and I would just like really wallow in it. And what I found is that when you get older, maybe you can't afford emotionally to go there. So I just won't put those, those songs on when I feel like that. I might do a little bit if I need to cry, but I'll always gravitate to a more upbeat vibe. I just because I can't afford to be like a crumbling mess, you know. That's really interesting, and I feel that in your newest album, which we we are about to talk about. But before we talk about Brudex, one of the many reasons I was really, really excited to talk to you is because of this gap in the making of your music. You know, we didn't have just this year after year churning out an album forever. You had a real... I don't know if it was in dropping an album or music making in general, but if we could speak to why now and why that gap. Well, what's so funny is I was just, 
I was just listening to all my voice recordings on, you know, on your phone, you can have those little voice recordings. And I have all of the, I just was like sitting down going, I wonder if I have anything good in there. And there's so much in there. And it was all the years that I was like, and you can hear my kids crying in the background. And so I didn't really stop making music. I just stopped playing it for people or making a point of it. And I was also, I did lots of kind of, um, I did a lot of commercials, music for commercials under a pseudonym, and I'll never tell you, but, um, and I made money doing that, actually much better money than actually making it, releasing this record. But I couldn't put my name to it because I just was like, oh, this is so cute. Um, but it was so fun. Actually, in some ways, it was so much more fun because I didn't have this pressure of like, I have to be cool and I have to make a point. And it's so funny because... My friend was like, this song has to be like a French vibe. And my friend and I who were doing it, we were laughing so hard because I was like, I think I even spoke in French a bit and like <laughs> so bad. And people loved it. I mean, that's the thing. That's the thing that's insane about this world that we live in. Like you can just spend so much time on something and put so much love into it. And then you could just like do some joke track with your friend and it becomes like the biggest thing you've ever done. And you're like, what? I'm so confused. I guess that's what TikTok and like this new world we're li living in, where it's just like, you know, things that you never imagine become like huge and like all this stuff you do, like incredible work and writing and recording and painting. And it's like, no one cares, you know, but I was making music. I just, I didn't want to put myself in a situation that would put, like I had been, my heart had been so broken by music by the time I had my kids, I was just done. You know, I just, I toured around five times over in vans, opening for people, sometimes headlining. I had showed up at venues with my name misspelled on the, you know, up on the, the board. And, and it just, it was so much, there was like, there was a spinal tap moment where I was just like, where is my manager? Where's my record label? And I'm just like in this random town in the middle of England in the winter and uh, my Jason my lovely friend who also is um you know kind of my musical director but also we've written songs together and he's just like you know what it feels like nobody is on your team and I'm like yeah I feel that way and so I just kind of packed it up and very quickly I met I had actually met my husband but we fell in love and I just was like nah I'm not putting myself in that situation again and it took 17 years. I mean, it took, it took me meeting. I mean, I was starting to feel this urge to write, but it was always with the intention that I would do it so that I could write with other people. I never wanted to go on stage again. I didn't want to put myself in a situation to get scrutinized or criticized or reviewed. I was done with that. But then the record kind of started making itself and COVID happened. And I was like, you know what? This is the first time I'm going to make something. And I kind of, I mean, you always move the goalposts, you know, like that expression, right? So you're like, oh, I'm just, I just want to make, I just want to put this out. But then you're like, well, it's really good. I really want a tour or I really want people to buy it. So you're kind of constantly moving the goalposts. But if I remember what my initial feeling was, was just put out music. And I did that. And so I should just be happy with that and not expect anything more. It's a lesson in life. The journey, not the destination. It makes a lot of sense to me what you're saying about leaving the music industry and giving it your all and, you know, falling in love and starting a family and, but just feeling like 
okay, I've done this thing. I've put in a lot of effort. What is it giving back to me? And I'm just so curious after many years of, like you said, you were making music, but you weren't necessarily putting it out with an audience in mind. What brought you back to that? And let's talk about Brudex and your newest album and where your mind was at. And it's such, I would just want to say it's such a joyful, complex album, but it really has this sense of, in my mind, when I listen to it, lightness, and airiness that the earlier albums did not, and playfulness that your earlier albums did not have. And I'm thinking of like the kids in the background of one of the tracks. Well, first of all, like I said before, I wanted to be super cool and booty when I was younger. And I think when you get older, you become less of a snob musically. I mean, like now I can totally kind of get into a Doja Cat song. Or, like I like when I was younger, I would have been like, it's not cool, even though they are. But I'm like, I don't listen to that music. But I would like secretly listen to it in the car and like be singing along. And now I think when you get older, you're just like, yeah, that's awesome song. It's really great. I love it. I think with this, I purposely made it a piano record. So all of the songs were pretty much written on the piano. And I'm a terrible piano player. So they're very basic. But I didn't want to stand behind a guitar like I always did. You know, it restricts you when you perform live. And I wanted to be able to run around the stage and dance and sing. And so I kind of had that in my mind when I made it. I'd been listening to a lot of LCD Sound System and a lot of uh, Phoenix and Arcade Fire. And I'd seen a lot of their shows. And actually, when I was pregnant with my daughter, we went to the um, Madison Square Garden last last show of LCD Sound System. Of course, they ended up coming back, but we thought it was the last show. And it was the best show ever because it was like, um, there's a part in All My Friends where it was like, this could be the last time. And it's like the whole room, the whole of Madison Square Garden just was like, <laughs> and I still get chills. And I was like, I, and I, so that was kind of like forming, not them, but just the way that kind of maybe more up music has this other effect that maybe you on a guitar has. Like, it's a very different thing. You know, there's something incredible about just being with a guitar and like pin drop and having holding the audience. But then there's also this amazing energy when people are having the best time and dancing and, you know, you're just like, and the performers are like so in it. And I just wanted, I'm not saying that my record is like this dance record, but I definitely was like, you know, with like Call You By Your Name, I was like, at the end, I want this to be like, just this like a release and I was like cowbell (laughs) and uh, it was so fun and also Max who I made the record with you know what was great about Max is Max Cook is that he was kind of an unknown or is or well he won't be for long because he's incredible and he's just this genius plays every instrument but also this lovely personality that when we would kind of get to a place where the song wasn't working my old self and my younger self would have either given up, stormed out, gotten upset, or if he said, you know, I want to do this, my old self would have gone, okay, and then I would have just been resentful. And there are songs that I have on my records that I'm still resentful about because I didn't speak up or because I just was, I was lazy. I was like, that's fine. That's fine. I don't mind the bass. And then I'm like, what? You don't want to be a troublemaker, but your name is on the thing. Yeah, I think so. But also, like, there's a little bit of, like, I think fear. So someone told me once that laziness is fear. And I think that it felt like laziness, but I guess it was fear. Maybe if you don't try your best and you don't succeed, then you can blame it on the fact that you didn't do your best. But when you try your best 
when you don't, it's 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 like a punch in the gut. But actually, now with age, I'm like, when you try your best and you don't succeed, you can sleep at night because you tried your best. And so a lot of my issue with my the beginning of my career, I think it did happen too quickly. And I had this, I was spoiled. And I think I really believed that it just was going to happen or and it was just so easy and and I didn't do the stuff that I should have done. But of, of course, in hindsight, I wouldn't be here. I'd be somewhere else, maybe with someone else's children and living another life. Maybe I would have this huge hit behind me and I'd be like this, you know, someone that was kind of like, in some way I feel like I have this, because I never really made it, I have this like ability to still be this new artist in some way, you know? That's really fascinating. And I think that, I feel that there's definitely a freshness, obviously, as I said in this album, but to hone in onto it a little bit more, I cannot get Bring on the Lonely out of my head. And I just love that song. I love that song. it's funny with that one because it was so it was done in like 20 minutes and it was kind of like I just made up the lyrics on the spot and I did it with this guy really breeding who lives in Nashville and he was in New York and we were just in his I can't remember if it's aunt or his girlfriend's aunt but it just came out and I remember so we I did it before I started making this record it's one of the songs I kind of was like had done and I remember when we were making this record I went I really love the song I did I really want to add it on to the record and it's funny because that music lovers love that record love love that song because it's kind of it just is what it is there's nothing there's no dressing up I feel that it's so like underdressed and I mean that in the best way it's really that it makes sense that it just kind of came out um I, I can't stop listening to it and I'm also interesting about interested in a discussing the specific lyric in the beginning because it's so in line with what we're talking about, speaking to your younger self versus now, where you say, I'm not calling you back because I'm not going to be what I was. And I'm not calling you back because I'm not going to be what I was. And I'm not calling you back because I'm not going to be what I was. And I'm not calling you back because 
what was going through your mind? Is it, is it this concept? Well, I was pregnant at the time. So I, for the beginning, the verse I was, so this would have been uh, 12 years ago when my kid is 12. So I was pregnant with my oldest kid and I was in my old apartment. I just started to live with my boyfriend who's with, and I had this apartment on Mott Street that I loved. It was like a little studio apartment that I had bought with my money when I signed my deal. And it was like, it's like a little room. And actually a lot of artists ended up living there after me, like friends. And so it's like this kind of creative little room, I would say, in the heart of NoHo. And for people that don't know what NoHo is, it's North of Palestine, which is a very cool area in New York. And so um, Jason, I've spoken about Jason Grissel, who has played and written lots of songs with me and also just been on many tours with me. And he's like a brother and a friend and his wife, Christian Joy, who's the costume designer, or clothes designer. And we were there and I was like about to pop the baby. And I remember being terrified and it was kind of winter. My kid came in June. So it was like probably, it was freezing. It was like April. New York can still be very cold then. And he had this little track and this like drum machine and we had the computer and we just did it on GarageBand. And I wrote, we wrote the beginning verse verses there was no chorus it was like just that and then there would just be like an instrumental with the same part and it was like very like almost kind of joy divisiony and you know basically and he had this cool beat but it was very kind of lo-fi and I had that in my pocket and I mean metaphorically in my pocket for the whole of like those 12 years when I was kind of struggling with you know standing outside the school talking to other mothers about what the best anything after school I mean you know what I mean like mindless stuff and I was going I'm dying a slow death here and I would just kind of sometimes check in with that song and it would remind me that I had this tiny little tiny fire burning somewhere that you know could possibly come back but anyway so when it came to this record most of the songs were written in that time in the you know in the studio with Max and I would do together but there were a few songs 100 Ghosts um, the beginning and bring on the lonely were songs that I had written kind of, but beginning. So I had the verse and then he's, we were like, he's like, you need a chorus. And he's like, okay. And so when I say it, I'm not calling you back because I'm not going to be what it was. I was like on a tour before I like right up until I got pregnant. I was like on tour. I was going out at night. I was kind of living like a 20 year old and I wasn't, but I really was living like a child and suddenly I had a child growing inside of me. So I think my point was like, I'm not going to be the same person. There's no way I will. There's no way. There's no way. I wasn't like an old, like some people are old from the beginning. You know, I know people that are 21 and they're already living like old people to me. And I just, I'm, my mother was the same. My father was the same. We're just very young at heart. You know, I still think I'm 21. So I think that's what I meant by it. And then the chorus I wrote just like the last bit of the last thing I wrote for the record was the chorus at the beginning, which is kind of answering the question, the question, which is like, what the, what is going to happen? And then over 10 years or 12 years of figuring it out, I came to this conclusion that for me at the time, there was no, no one was speaking to me saying, this is just chapter one. There's chapter two and you're going to be even better in chapter two. Like all of the films, everything that you see, it's all, everyone's like in their twenties. And then it's like, then they're married and they have kids and it ends, right? I, I just felt like there was nobody that was represent, like there was no one to look, look at and go, 
oh, there's like a happy ending here. It's like the, that's how they did it model. Yeah. And I mean, it's definitely changing. It's definitely changing. I mean, I remember um, I was talking to a very close friend or family friend who, had, you know, does a lot of TV shows. And, and I was trying to pitch this idea of like, you know, basically what Sex in the City, the new one is now, right? Um, which is like women that have had kids and they're just trying to find themselves. And the, the, he was like, no one's going to watch that. Like no one's. And I think that he was right at the time. And I think for a long time, I felt the same way. I was definitely an ageist. Like that's the big issue is like, if you feel that way, how are you supposed to convince other people? And I kind of used to walk into the studios when I met producers or people and going, they were like half my age. And I, and I was really self-conscious about even like talking about records. And they're like, I've never heard of them. And I'm like, you don't know who the cure is? Like how, where were you born? And instead of being like, proud of the fact that I had this huge kind of life before they did. I would just feel embarrassed that I wasn't 25. I'm like, why would anyone want to listen to what I had to say, you know, mom? And that was a huge thing for me. That was partly why I didn't want to make a record either. It just made me so insecure. And then I think probably surrounding myself with people who didn't care and made me feel, um, you know, I guess Max and Jason and I just found, I surrounded myself with other people that were also young at heart and also didn't care about that. And then I stopped caring. And it's weird because it seems to be now that there are all these people out there that are having kind of, they're after kids or later in life, they kind of discover this whole other life. And it's so much better because you aren't riddled with all the insecurities that you have in your 20s and even 30s. I'm not concerned about, am I going to meet someone, you know? Exactly. And let's let's address that because it is one of my questions and I told you that we'd go there, which is, you know, you're obviously a mother and that affects your work in so many different ways. And it's especially critical in this conversation to address because obviously you're saying that when you sort of took that pause on, on the music industry, it was right when you were having your first child. Well, <clears throat> I think that I also had a really, I remember, um, I used to get really sad a lot. Um, and I think I, it, I think that when my parents got divorced, like, I picked up a guitar and it really saved my life. Like, I think all of my sadness went into the songs I wrote and they, it was, there was, they were there for, they were written for a purpose. It wasn't because I wanted to make a record. It wasn't because I wanted to, initially, every song I've ever written has only ever been because I needed to. It wasn't like, we need a hit or we need a song purpose. So um, I think that I just had nothing to say. I fell in love and luckily, you know, we are really happy. So I had this huge, um, I have this great friend, Julie. She knows everybody. And we were at this club in New York. This was a long time ago. This is kind of after my third record came out. And I was out and about and it was kind of a, fun, crazy time in New York at the time. It was like the early 2000s. And I remember being in there and she was good friends with Bono from obviously you too. And I was sitting next to him and I asked him this question, which was, how do you write love songs when you have been married? Which I wish I'd remembered the answer because I was wondering. And he spent like 30 minutes telling me all about it. And somewhere in the back of my brain, that conversation exists. If only I could access it. But I was definitely one of those people that felt like you have to be in pain 
to make music oh my god you can't you can't you know and i remember someone telling me about like bob dylan just you know read a book and write about that character and i'm like i can't do it like i don't ever i cannot write a book i can if i was with someone else and they wanted to write a song and i i could totally co-write with them and channel them but i don't think i could ever like read an article or read a book or see a film get inspired to write a song personally like it has to be really either being affecting me or someone i love so i i just didn't have anything to say personally like it wasn't like i had this huge reason other than that i just had nothing to say i mean i had postpartum depression with my my first and and then i got pregnant really quickly with my second i was in the thick of it and i definitely made a point like i'm not gonna write you know all these parents i'm like i'm gonna write kids books and i'm gonna I'm going to write nursery rhymes. I'm like, I'm never going to do that. I will wait and wait and wait until it comes to me, if it ever does. And that's what I did. That's very much in my mind, like the true artist's artist. Like you just wait until until the project feels ready and done. Yeah, I mean, I can't compare. Listen, I sometimes I hear myself speak and I'm like, God, you're so... Listen, it was a luxury. I didn't... And first of all, money... Only in the beginning, when I first signed, there was a lot of money out there in the music business. It was like, it was kind of the glory days where, you know, you were taken out for dinners and any wine you wanted. And it was like charged to the record company. Of course, eventually it's always charged to you, but you don't know at the time. You just think you're, you think that you're like hot shit. And, you know, we toured around all of Europe and I had like a full band and we were taken out to every, like every cool city, like Paris, Rome, you know, Stockholm and going to the best restaurants on tour, like the most fun you could ever imagine. Like you cannot compare anything. It's like summer, I never went to summer camp, but it, I imagine it's like the best summer camp ever, but throw in like being over 21 and being in the coolest cities in the world. Right, right. And that was actually one of my questions. And I keep wanting to segue into like a different question here, a different question here, because I maybe have 10 questions and I feel like we could answer each of them in like 20 hours. but this difference between working for a major record label and then going independent, obviously, like you're saying, there was the budget there. It was glory days. And I'm sure it's been very, very different working independently. And I'm curious about that and how that's affected the making of this newest album. I think that part where you're creating, so the part in the studio and the writing, that has been the most pleasurable because there's nobody kind of I mean, the last record I made, 13, which I made with Sam Dixon, which was amazing too. We kind of did it the same way where my dad had just died. It was 2004. And I was living in London with my mom. I had moved back from New York to be with her and be, stay home. And I was in, obviously, like, my dad died tragically, very, you know, unexpected, fell off a mountain. So he was, like, the love of my life. I mean, in, in that I was one of those daughters that just, all I wanted was my dad, you know, because I just never really got enough with him. So it was it was like as if I'd lost my dad when I was 16, although I was 20, but it felt like I was 16. And I remember going to Sam's. He lived in um, Queen's Park, and I'd take the bus, two bus every day, and we would work from 10 to 6. And we made 13s like that. And then I got signed, and then it started to become difficult because what happened was, they're like, this is great. Imagine if you went to a studio in LA with this person and got strings, you could make it even bigger. And listen, it was a great, it's a great record, but I should have just put it out. 
the way it was. Because it's amazing, but it was amazing as this kind of little thing that was done in his bedroom, in his office. And with this record, because I, you know, if I had waited and then gone to the label, they could have gone, gone, well, the beginning could be a hit. So why don't you speed it up a bit? And then also TikTok only plays things that are like, I mean, that's, I'm not kidding. When um, I speak to friends of mine who are making music and they're like, oh, no, no, we told people actually, we'll go in and go, what's going to be good for TikTok? And you're just like, so I'm just grateful that I got to make the record without that. But it is really hard. I am, I feel like I'm doing, I'm pulling like a freight train up a hill. And that, you know, I had this idea that the music was going to be so good that people were just going to find it. But, you know, 10,000 songs get uploaded or downloaded onto Spotify every week. So you'd say like maybe a thousand of those are great. So then you've got to like, how do you get found? Like, how does one break through when every artist after COVID has just made the most incredible record? And I think that in my mind at the time, I thought, oh yeah, social media and just like word of mouth. But I guess I am definitely going, hmm, maybe it would have been smarter to have signed at least, you know, maybe so I have some team behind me. I mean, it comes up in every single episode again and again and again. It takes a village. And it came up in the last episode in a really powerful way where we were talking about working in a care community. And this applies to, like I said before, people who have, I was talking to Christina Muscatello in the last episode who founded the nonprofit where she works, does art advocacy for people with memory loss. And she was saying how, you know, I was asking her, like, how do we support the care, the caregivers as much as we support the people who are actually ill? And I feel like this does relate to what we're talking about because we don't talk about very often that we know we all know it takes a village to raise a child but she was saying it also takes a village to raise an adult it also takes a village to be a successful adult to be a healthy adult and we don't get that all the time in adulthood and we don't get that when we're parents in the same way and when we need the support the most when we're caregiving it's kind of just known that you know if your husband is an alcoholic or your mother is suffering from Parkinson's or somebody close to you is somebody you're caring for, that often the caregiver is the one who's actually in some ways suffering and struggling more. Oh my God. I mean, listen, my my mom had eight years of Alzheimer's and was diagnosed right when I had had my second kid. She came to be with me and help me, you know, because I didn't know what I was doing and I had two very young kids. They were 16 months apart and she kept having these kind of weird things like she would forget things but I forget things all the time so but then we went to go see incredible geriatric neurologist and she basically told us that my mom had the most aggressive Alzheimer's and so she was only 68 and by 70 she was literally unable to speak or move she couldn't feed herself she couldn't walk and she was like that for seven years so I would go visit her and I would just sit down and in the beginning, she would acknowledge me and she would kind of smile. But then I think the end, because I was not living around, she, my brother looked after her. He was incredible. My brother stopped everything, moved in with her, and her caregiver was stealing from her. And 
my brother saw that and he basically fired her and moved in and lived down for her for seven years. And um, he still lives in my mom's apartment and he basically made it okay for me to keep going on because I think there's a huge amount of guilt. You know, when someone is sick like that, you know, it's also hard because I had my own kids. I couldn't take care of her. My sister had her own kids too that were young. She couldn't take care of her. So my brother didn't have kids and it just worked out that he says that those years were the best of his life and I found them to be the worst because I was very connected to my mother from very early on. I was kind of a tall speaker and I used to like, I would read my emotions by looking at her. So if she was happy, I was happy. If she was glad, I was sad. I was the youngest. And um, so I think that was partly why I moved away to America because I knew in my heart that I probably would end up looking after her and not ever getting married. I would have just stayed with her. Yeah, and that's so honest. I commend you for it. No, I knew I would have. And, and actually, um, I had to run away because she was so, as she says, delicious. She was the most delicious. And she made everything so fun. You know, she would just like watch movies together. Even when my dad died, we would just sit and she would tickle my back and we would watch silly films and or reality shows and she would drink wine and she smoked a lot of cigarettes and she had the coolest artist friends they'd come over and they just very you know her best friend uh, ricardo was a argentine artist and her other friend hannah they were just all great and i was like hmm, i'm never gonna go anywhere i'll just stay here but the thing about the caretaker thing it's really hard because everybody eventually is going to get sick right we all are whether it's at 90 or 80 i mean it's just inevitable and it's not sick it's old age right old age gets brings on all the things that happen i just feel that this is a really important part of this conversation because like we were talking about it takes a village to make anything good it takes a village to be a healthy human it's not even about making things or producing things you know obviously we're not just like machines that you know our values only in producing but you did come out with this very, very incredible album that is full of life and and you feel your family in it and and you're speaking about your family and and I just want to know what was going through your mind as you're making the album. We talked a little bit about that, but do you have a favorite song that just feels so relevant to your life right now? Present day, Leona? Well, it's funny. So um First of all, I really wanted to make a point of not repeating myself. So with all my records before, pretty much the first two are all about unrequited love or like being heartbroken. And I love those songs. Um, I grew up with them, but obviously I wasn't in the same place. I wasn't like dating and getting dumped or dumping people or um, fighting with friends. You know, I was pretty much a stable human. I, so what I what I realized is that Every single song is its own thing. There, there's no, I'm not repeating myself ever. I'm not, you know, writing two songs about the same subject. It's almost like each song, and that's why to me, they're also kind of like, all of them are huge, except for maybe the one you love, uh, Bring on the Lonely, which is just, it is what it is. But like, I kind of had all this stuff in me, years of music, years of influence, years of life, years of pain and joy, and I just wanted to almost have like each song its own universe. So I love Call You By Your Name.
But uh, my favorite song, it changes all the time. I love kisses in movies. Me too. My daughter sings the, she wrote the chorus when she was seven and I had it on my phone. And, and it just, the end, I get like goosebumps and I just feel so emotional because it was kind of in the thick of COVID and I haven't seen any of my family or friends in over a year. And I just, you know, we just had this, this song came out of it. And uh, so I love that one. But I, I kind of I think I love all of them. Like it's, I hate that saying when everyone's like, oh, they're like your own children, but it feels a bit like that. No, it's true. It's true. They're your darlings. And um, on that note, I think it's very brave what you've done, which it shouldn't have to be said that it's brave. You're just living your life and you're putting out work when you feel ready to put it out. And But I do think it should be said that a big point of this project for me is talking about how we hold many, like your album, many different universes inside of us, many different beautiful selves that get reinvented and they change. And that's why I can't stop thinking about that lyric, like in the beginning, where I'm not calling you back because I'm not going to be who I was or what I was. And that can be 17 years you know, ago that you're talking to your 17-year-ago self. It could be yesterday. It could be three minutes before. Your life can change that quickly, as you know. You've been through so much already. Yeah, I mean... That's the reason why I try not to explain too much, like, because I, I mean, for, for you, that might, you know, it's like, I remember once having this, this idea about a song, and then someone told me the meaning, and I was like, no, it's so different. It's like meeting your, the person you admire, and they're like, totally different than what you expected. No, don't ever meet your heroes. No, <laughs> exactly. Always disappoint you. <laughs> I do want to talk about a piece of it. I know you always probably get asked this question, but when we're going through, you know, you're talking about your, your mother going through Alzheimer's. We're talking about your father's death in a tragic climbing accident and being a mother for the first time while also being a musician and struggling in the music industry. And there's all of these moments that are so formative that you go through. Is there a mantra or something in your, a piece of advice somebody has given you to help you get through those moments? It's a really good question. Someone once told me, this expression, it's a long dance to love. So whenever someone says to me, like, oh, you know, we love each other, but we live in other places, or, we, you know, the timing, and I'm like, long dance? You know, like, it's not over, you know? Meaning, like, you know, you never know what will happen. And I think I would say the same for work and for everything, relationship with friendships, like the ebb and flow. And, you know, I think as soon as I... I mean, whenever you hold on to anything tightly, you lose it. I mean, you have to, what would be the mantra? I think, okay, this is one. So there were a few songs, like Collarbone really kicked my butt. I love Collarbone. Oh. Well, I hated it for a long time because I had the beginning of that, I had that baby leave your lungs, which I loved that part. And I was like, and so I had to write this chorus and I wanted it to be like more like a, blur vibe in the chorus and not like a rock vibe and we were like I had all these different drummers come in and no one was doing it right and it was all favors because I didn't have any money so it was like can you come in and and I remember being in the studio with with Max and I go it's just not working and he's like and it was the first time I saw him kind of come undone he goes well I don't I, I mean, we tried everything and I was like my old self the younger self would have just given up and I think I just I kind of like lowered my heart rate down and I was like, we can fix it. We have time. And we did. But it was like, 
clean. And there were times where I just went, can we just cut this song out? Like, it's not, it sounds neither here, it's neither here. And I mean, the amount of time spent and Chloe Bainey too, like there were times where I was like, the bass, really, you know, the drums weren't good enough. We, you know, so. I'm so glad you didn't. No, and so I think maybe what you, what I would say that I, not that I have patience because I'm the least patient person, but I think that before I would have just given up on it or compromised. And now I'm, and you have to surround yourself with people that won't get mad at you because that's another thing. You could be in this situation and have a really famous producer that tells you you're crazy and it's awesome. That's why I would always say, don't work with a really famous producer unless you're more famous than the producer because you will always be, in a way, they're the superstar and you have to be, you have to be running the show. It was the first time I felt like I was able to also help Max. He's younger than I am. He's starting out. He's amazing. But he also, like an artist, because he's he was in a band and he's an artist, me saying, I don't like it, would have felt like criticism to him right so he would i could see him kind of shutting down and i was able to be the older person and go we're gonna figure this out and like that was amazing to be the one that was almost pep talking my producer like no this is awesome it just isn't right but that doesn't you know like that thing and like you know texting like at night going i love it you know and usually i was the one spinning and the producer would be like it's okay and I was able to kind of be the the grown up in that in that situation. I mean, I say that, and Max put many more hours into everything than I did because he had to do the production and the, and he was the engineer, everything. And as you can tell, there's a lot going on. Yeah, I learned this recently from another podcast I was listening to with Alexandra Solomon, but she who's a psychiatrist or psychologist. Um, on relationships and she was saying how so many relationships have like the spinner and then the rock and she was interviewing her husband and it was such a sweet conversation but I, I feel like it's so what you're speaking to that I'm hearing that's so special is when the spinner gets to be the rock for someone else or the rock gets to be the spinner yes and by the way there were times where I was spinning and he would be the rock but that I think you're right I mean now that I'm, now I'm rethinking about a relationship <laughs> Well, I think we're both spinners. Exactly. <laughs> I I would say I'm the spinner and my partner's the rock for sure. But there are moments where I have to be the rock and then I can be the rock because my partner's been the rock for me all these years. I think it's healthy to be both if you can be, right? I think so too because it, we need different different to be different things at different moments. I have two last final questions. I, I know I've kept, kept you for a while. One being... What did you want to be when you were a kid? This is our recurring question. And what do you want to be now, imagining yourself five years in the future? Well, I was, I definitely, because I, like I said, I was really not good at school. I was dyslexic. I didn't know I was dyslexic. So I was like, every time they would go around the class and go, like, it would get to me. I would, my heart would just go, I just always felt dumb. Never knew the answer. I was always daydreaming. So I knew I was never going to be like, a mathematician or a doctor or a lawyer, but I think I wanted to own a candy store. <laughs> I love that because I love candy. Or be a farmer. We own a candy store. Yeah, but I also wanted to be a farmer because I wanted to be lots of animals that wouldn't kill any of them. 
because I would have one of those farms where you rescue them. But I picked up the guitar. I started singing in all the kind of school things. I tried out for every play. I was always like the worst part, and I just thought I was. I went to every audition at school. I didn't go in real life, but I think I always knew I wanted to do something in music. But I mean, I think I could be a therapist. Actually, I would have liked to have been a therapist, but I don't think I would have been able to have any boring patients. <laughs> In my mind, if I'm a therapist, it's going to be like everyone has got a great story. I never really think about the fact that someone might just sit there and go, and then the car was hot on the way to work, and then I stopped at a red light. I'd just be like, nope, out of it, Uh, and you're not my client anymore. The second part of that question is where your head's at now. What are you you hoping for, or where do you hope to be, I guess, in the next five years? I feel like anything to do with me is a luxury, so like, I'm, I have a kid that's on the edge of the teen years and oh my goodness, it's terrifying. So when you asked me that question, the crazy thing is my first question, my first answer was, my kids are happy. You know, I get them through being teenagers without them like destroying themselves or, you know, getting kicked out of schools or, you know, just get them to the other side. <laughs> like, I think the scary years now are like, 13 to like 17 and it's like when I was a kid it was like after 17 is when I didn't get scary but now these kids are like because of the internet whatever they're like they're seeing too much but if I was just thinking about myself and not my kids and my family I would say I would love to just keep making music I've already working with Max in a few weeks and I have all these other songs I mean I would really love for some magical spell to like happen and someone just kind of discovers this record because I think it's worth being discovered. Another saying that someone once told me is the cream always rises to its top. So I guess they're talking about like, you know, like the coffee and stuff and cream being the good stuff. And it's like, I would be happy to tour around the US or Europe and play like for 250 people a night or 500 people that would be amazing and honestly I think anything after that I don't know if people are much happier you know I just like can I come and be your groupie when you tour yeah of course you can (laughs) where are you based I'm in Brooklyn right now okay so when I'm back in New York I'll do a show and you'll have to come I would love to well thank you so much Leona thank you so much bye that's a wrap for season two. Thanks to the incredible Leona Ness for concluding a great season. You can find Leona's music on Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube, etc. Follow her on Instagram at Leona Ness. Thanks to Erica Enriquez who produced the music for our pod and to Shortstack New York where it was recorded. Massive shout out to our sound editor Mahogany Cheetah who spent many nights up with me getting these episodes done on top of our full-time gigs. We'll be taking a much-needed break for the rest of the summer. Thank you all for listening and supporting our project, and we'll hopefully see you back for season three. If you find yourself missing us and want to reach out, find us on the gram at ongoingnesspod or online at anchor.fm slash ongoingness. Until next time.
next to you Do you?